there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so glad you're along for the ride, whether you're out cleaning your apartment. Actually, you probably wouldn't be out, you'd be in. Or maybe you're out running errands or perhaps even at the gym. I know you're going to really enjoy my next guest as he is an actor who has worked on the big screen in independent films, on television shows, and on Broadway. But before I introduce you to Scott Lowell, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday with an overview of the five new episodes we're going to be dropping each day that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee dot org. And it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, I invite you to check out all the other T4C episodes that are organized by profession also on the homepage. So you can search for the episodes we've dropped with the professionals that are most relevant to your interests. In the meantime, grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite piping hot mocha latte or cappuccino because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And I'm rolling out the rhetorical red carpet for my next guest, Scott Lowell, who is best known for his roles on television as Ted Schmidt in Showtime's popular, critically acclaimed and groundbreaking series, Queer as Folk, as well as his portrayal of Dr. Douglas Fillmore on the long-running series Bones. In 2014 to 2015, Scott made his Broadway and West End, that's in London, the Broadway equivalent, debut in the hit revival of The Elephant Man, starring Bradley Cooper and Patricia Clarkson. And most recently, Scott has written, produced, and starred in the first season of his own series called Adoptable, a comic fake documentary very loosely based on the actual search that Scott made for his own birth parents and his life as an adult adoptee. Scott, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am as much as I ever can be. Oh, fantastic, Scott. <laughs> I am so excited to interview you. You are my first actor that I've had the pleasure of getting to showcase on Time for Coffee. Well, I'm honored. What a what a great honor. I, I feel like I've won an award already. Oh, aren't you sweet? And you're <laughs> obviously an incredibly down-to-earth guy, which makes you even more likable. I have to say, before we talk about Adoptable, in which you're uh-huh. wearing many different hats, I want to start by asking you about your other day job over the last 20-plus years in which you've been a working actor, where presumably you're only wearing one hat. Can you take us inside what it is like when you're working on a show like Queer as Folk, Mm -hmm. which filmed in Toronto, Canada? What, Scott, was required of you each week to do your job, in that case, as the luckless Ted? Well, it required a lot of psychological abuse (laughs) on myself, playing somebody who is kind of so self-loathing. Yeah, it was there was definitely a an aspect of the journey on that show of trying to figure out how to leave the work at the office. 
you know, something that's quite different about acting in a television series that's different from theater acting and certainly different from any other kind of business job where you can maybe leave everything, you know, at the office once you shut your computer off. And, and even when you're doing a play, if you're doing the same play, even for a long run, you're taking the same kind of journey with that character night after night. When you're doing a television series, it can really be like, and especially in the first few seasons of our show where we averaged maybe 16 to 18 hour days filming, you're spending more of your life inside the skin of that character than you are spending it in your own skin in a lot of ways. And so depending on the challenges of that character, you know, if it's a light, fun character, it's not a big deal. There was a certain darkness, despite him supposing to be a humorous character, there was a lot of darkness and self-loathing and challenges to to Ted in that series that in the first year, especially once we finally got a break after about six or seven months of filming constantly, uh, where I all of a sudden realized, boy, I'm really depressed. Why am I so depressed? <laughs> I've got wow. this great job, all this stuff. And and I recognized that it was because I was living too much of the life of this other character. And so the challenge became, you know, for the rest of the five-year run of figuring out ways to separate myself from him and to, if I could, leave him in my trailer uh, when I left for the end of the day. How did you do that? By finding kind of outside activities, by investing more in my life up in Toronto. And I'll say I, I didn't always succeed. And it would certainly take me when we would finish shooting at the end of a season, it could take me sometimes a month to where I really felt like myself again. And it's just one of the prices you pay. It's a small price. In the end, it's worth it. But it's it's can be an aspect of these jobs. And it's the same for people when they work on films for you know months and months at a time. Sometimes also... Uh, to be honest, it can be easier to stay in that headspace because it's harder to come in and out of it. And if you want the work to be really as truthful and honest as it can be, sometimes you just let it wash over your life for however long you're doing that project and know that you'll get out of it eventually. But it can be a dangerous game to play. I, I had to go through that in uh, the third season of the show. The character became a crystal meth addict and was in a really, really dark place. And partially because I was on an awful diet to lose weight while I was doing it because I wanted the, you know, the ravaging effects of the drug to be able to be seen visibly on my body as, as well as psychologically. But I was in a pretty foul mood <laughs> for <laughs> a few months oh my gosh. Uh, because of all that. And, you know, fortunately, the cast and especially our lovely crew on the show were very understanding and they were used to me being fairly jovial on the set, but they knew and understand that I was doing what I needed to do to get it right, which was very important to us at the time. Yeah. Scott, you raise such an interesting point because I think I, as a viewer of so many different shows, just assumed that there is an element of, you know, firewall between mm -hmm. the actor their life and their time on the screen. But what you're saying is that is actually probably more often than not, not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it can vary from actor to actor to what it is they need to do to kind of be in the proper place for their performance. I think there are people who probably get far more psychologically deep into things and let it overtake their lives than I usually do. That was kind of one instance. I think I've gotten better over time as well in shaking it off. The challenge as well with Queer's Folk, that was my first time doing a long-running series in that way. So it was all new to me. So I was learning while I was trying to, to do all this. But yes, it can be a lot of fun. 
I believe in in ensemble, and that goes not only with my fellow actors, but whoever's working on a crew. I try to create a family, and unfortunately, the cast of our series felt very much that same way. And the nicest sets I've worked on as well, I mean, you mentioned Bones that I worked on earlier, had a similar kind of vibe. I mean, if you have a family environment on these sets, especially shows that are running multiple years, it's just a lot easier to get the work done and to get the best out of people if they feel welcomed, if they feel like they're participants in the process rather than just kind of peons. And then you feel supported and safe because you are in a very vulnerable place, whatever you're doing, even if you're doing a comedy, the risk you're taking and performing, making a complete fool of yourself in a way that you don't want to is great. So you have to trust the people that are around you aren't judging you, uh, are supporting you. And you want to do the same for them too. Yeah, it's it's very important to, for me. And I've been on terrible sets. I've been on awful sets of long running hit shows. And I just don't know how they do it. It's so toxic. And it makes you not want to do your best in a weird way. You don't feel safe. You don't feel comfortable. And I think it's uh, it's a big mistake. Scott, I want to go back to where you did feel safe uh, mm-hmm. at Queer as Folk. Could you take us into what you would be doing on any given day? You mentioned the hours, as many mm-hmm. as 18-hour days. What would you be doing if we were a fly on the wall? What would we be seeing and hearing Scott Lowell do? Well, it's kind of a microcosm in some ways for an acting career in general. There's a lot of waiting with spurts of great creativity and terror and joy <laughs> Inter, interspersed. You, you know, on those very long days, I mean, an insight I'll give you for you know, for people who have never you know seen behind the scenes footage or, or know what goes into making a scene, especially for a television show, which films can be different because films usually a director has storyboarded out. They know very specifically what exact shots they want for every single scene. For a television series, because it's really more of a producer's medium as opposed to a director's medium, because you have a rotating cast of directors generally who are coming in, changing episode to episode. To shoot a scene that, say, has four people in it, you're going to set up a shot that's going to be your wide shot, which is going to encompass all four people, hopefully, in one shot. And you do as many takes as you need to do of that. And then you want to get a shot of maybe two people at a time. Now, every time you're changing the shot, you're changing the lights, you're changing the camera, you're sometimes having to remove walls from a set so the camera can go into a certain different place, you're removing furniture. So the in-between times, in-between each setup of a shot can take an hour or more sometimes. So you're going to shoot those two people, and then you've got to do another shot getting the other two people, and now you're going to do individual shots close-ups on each of the actors. And that's to give the producers as many options as possible when it comes to editing the episode together. They don't like to be limited in the shots. So they, they want all the options available. So to shoot, you know, a maybe 30 second to a minute long scene, it can sometimes take four hours just to shoot that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that would surprise people in terms of of what goes on. And so during that time, the challenge for you as the performer, because of union rules, you can't help out with (laughs) moving the set or moving the lights (laughs) or things like that. So you have a lot of downtime in between when you're shooting, when you're actually acting, that you have to keep your energy up. However it is you choose to do that, you need to maintain a certain level of focus and you need to be ready once the camera starts rolling again to 
be present and to be available. And sometimes you're jumping into the middle of the scene, you know, where the scene starts, you're already in a very emotional place. So you have to figure out how you're going to get yourself there right from the get-go. You don't often get to ramp up into it. You just have to be ready to go. And because people have been waiting so long doing all these setups, you need to get it done because you also, you have someone who's a line producer who's in charge of making sure everything that's supposed to be shot that day gets done. They're tapping their watch saying, all right, we got 10 more minutes to get this scene (laughs) because we spent so much time setting it up. So don't mess up. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I want to compare that to being in theater. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you made your Broadway and West End debut in the hit revival of The Elephant Man. What role did you play? And what was involved, Scott, in performing on stage at that level? How many shows were there a week? How many hours a day? What was required of you in that versus Queer as Folk and Bones. It's very different. And, you know, and again, I came from a theater background. I spent almost 11 years in Chicago just doing theater. And even in when I moved to Los Angeles and, and Queer as Folk came about fairly quickly uh, my second summer out there, I've tried to do at least one play a year as kind of a palate cleanser because that's more my roots. So in some ways, it's where I'm more comfortable. And that's because theater is really more of an actor's medium because while a director has great control of what the production looks like and how things go, in the end, no one's going to stop your performance in the middle of a play and say, do that again. (laughs) So it's really, you kind of have the freedom when you're out there performing to make it your own and you feel a lot more in charge and control of things. That being said, specific to Elephant Man, I played three or four different roles in that show. There's basically three main characters, John Merrick, who is the Elephant Man, who Bradley Cooper played, Dr. Treves, who a wonderful actor named Alessandro Nivola played, and uh, there's an actress named Mrs. Kendall that Patricia Clarkson played. Other than that, the other actors in the show all play multiple parts in the story of John Merrick's life. So I played characters that range from a very highfalutin British lord who was head of essentially a Ponzi scheme. I played the manager of some pinheads in a freak show. I played a porter who was kind of John Merrick's attendant when he was at the hospital. So schedule-wise for Broadway and the West End, it differs a little bit, but mostly you're doing eight shows a week with two two show days in there. You know, the most time you're spending is during rehearsal and especially tech rehearsals when you first move into the theater and all the technicians, the lighting designer, the sound designer and whatnot are getting cues right. Those are days where you maybe have 12-hour days and it's all very restricted by the unions of, that there has to be breaks at specific point in times. And and the same, I should say, you know, with television and film, that the unions we have for actors are very protective of us to make sure even if we're working long hours, we're either compensated financially or we're, we're taken care of in terms of getting breaks necessary so that we're not overworked and overtired in a way that we might injure ourselves and, and crew members as well. So that's the toughest part is the rehearsal process. You'll have 10-hour days sometimes. And then when you get into technical rehearsals, it's 12-hour days. When you're in previews for a show, which are usually the first few weeks of a run, 
Uh, sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer. You are allowed to be rehearsed during the day by the director, and then you do performances at night. And this is a way of fine-tuning the show with an audience's help before you have your actual opening. Once the show is open, you're just doing the performances, and it'll be like I said, eight shows a week uh, on Broadway because it, it's commercial as opposed to regional theaters, which are non-commercial productions. But because there's a great need to make money and as much money as possible <laughs> on Broadway and the West End, when it comes to like the holidays and there's certain days off you have for Christmas, New Year's, things like that, they will make sure they get those eight performances a week in no matter what. So sometimes you end up, I'm trying to remember it's a few years ago now, but I think we ended up doing actually close to 12 performances in a row um, be because there were days off that they wanted to make up for. So days that we would normally have off, usually in theater, Mondays are a day off and then shows go Tuesday through Sunday. But some of those Mondays got canceled because there would be a Wednesday or a Thursday off for Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. And so, yeah, those were the only tough times I remember where you got a little, a little exhausted. Yeah. And then the challenge, the big difference between theater and film or TV Maybe you're doing the scene over and over again a dozen times and you can try new things and, and all that kind of stuff. But then it's done and you're not returning to it. With theater, of course, especially when you're doing a longer run of something, you have to find a way every single night to make it seem like it's the very first time you've ever done that scene, the first time you've ever said those lines, because it's the audience's first time ever seeing them. So that's the challenge is how to keep it fresh for yourself and how to keep it interesting and challenging and discovering new things while keeping it within the parameters that have been decided by the director. Because once the show opens, theoretically, you can't change anything like it needs to stay as it was. So that's kind of uh, a bit of what it's like. So then again, it's a question of how do you fill your days? How do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of your body? How do you make sure you have enough rest so that when it comes to 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, you are at the peak level of your energies and your focus to give the best performance you can? And, you know, that can be a challenge just because life, everyone has a life and sometimes life is challenging. And once you step through that stage door, you have to find a way to leave it outside uh, and not bring it on stage with you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. I, I have even more respect for you and your fellow actors listening to just how arduous it is to, to juggle all of these factors. I want to switch gears just for a moment to talk about Adoptable. Was this your first effort to write a television series? And why don't you share with our listeners, Scott, what Adoptable is about and why you wanted to write, produce, and star in it? Of course. Thank you. Well, Adoptable actually began life. It's it's very loosely based on the search I went through for my birth parents back in 1999, actually, or 97 through 99. And there were many uncomfortable and awkward experiences I went through <laughs> during that uh, during that search. And to me, those things are very funny, not to everybody, but to me, I find that kind of stuff funny. And so it began actually as a request by a friend of mine who runs a show out in Los Angeles that's a storytelling show, kind of like the Moth Story Hour, I think a lot of people know. And this is called Sparks Off Rose, which is down in Venice, California. And my friend Karen Gutman, who runs that, I had told her and shared with her what went on during my search process. I hadn't told many people, but people I was friends with, I knew about it. And she really felt like I needed to write a piece about the process. And I 
didn't feel comfortable sharing it with the general public because it was a very private, personal thing. But she insisted. And after about 10 years of insisting, <laughs> uh, they had a theme, a monthly theme for their show. And the theme was strangers. And she really kind of held my feet to the fire and said, you're going to do this. And so I wrote it first as kind of a, a spoken word story piece. And I should say, too, that for me, when we talked about the downtime there is for an actor, either between jobs, between auditions, or even on a set, there's a lot of waiting around that goes on. For me to kind of scratch the creative itch when that's not being scratched otherwise, starting back in my years in Chicago, I started writing. I've always enjoyed writing. So I've written plays, I've written screenplays by myself and with my writing partner, my friend Eddie Jemison. So it's something I've always done, and, and she knew that as well. But I've never written something as personal as this. But I did. And it ended up going very well. The responses to the piece, you know, people laughed, they cried, they, you know, like all the kind of things you would hope people would react to in, in the story you're creating. And I got asked to do it at a number of other story festivals as well. And I just started feeling like, okay, there's something here that people are really responding to in a way that there's something universal to it, even though it's a story about adoption and living your life as an adoptee. And I began to realize after speaking to people that the universal thing in that is that it gets to that core question I think everybody has in their life of who am I? And adoptees just have a little bit extra <laughs> because they don't necessarily know their parentage. They don't know their heritage. They don't know their genetics like other people do. So it's a little more exaggerated, I guess, in a way mm -hmm. that what that question is, but it's something I think everybody has gone through in one way or another. So I felt like I wanted to do something more with it. And I'd had suggestions of writing a novel and I'd had suggestions of screenplays and other things like that. But starting in about 2012, I was noticing these web series were happening that people watched either on their computers, on their phones, things like that. And it got to a point where the quality of them was getting a bit better to where even the New York Times was starting to review some of these web series out there. And I started watching some of them. And they were mostly like you and I, two people sitting at a table, having coffee, talking because the parameters of a telephone screen were rather small or a computer screen. And there was no real thought to making it look like an actual television show. And I thought, there's something more to be done with this form. I think I don't want to pat myself on the back for having the foresight to see that eventually these things would be able to be seen on a big screen TV. So I might as well, if I'm going to do it, tell the story in a way that could still be cinemagraphic and interesting. And, and it also seemed like a way that it would be lower budget, especially if you do shorter episodes than a half hour or an hour, that I might be able to have control over it full control over it, which is not something you often get as an actor, that I would be able to raise the funds and do it cheaply enough that I could make it exactly the way I wanted to make it and not worry about having to find somebody else to sell it to and alter it to fit their vision of what it might be. So that's kind of the history of how I came to it. Now, it still took me two or three years to write it and really stop procrastinating and get it to a point of where I actually want to make it. But I started feeling a little less control in my own career. I started the time between jobs was getting greater for me. And I felt like I needed to do something to grab the reins a little bit and create my own work. And so I finally went about it. Now, in terms of you know being a producer and all that kind of stuff, other than just being the writer and acting in it, I really didn't want to do that. But I, I learned a lesson maybe late in life. Like if you want something to happen, sometimes you, you just have to do it all yourself. That I have a lot of wonderful colleagues who 
I love working with and I think love working with me and we're very willing to help. But in the end, everybody's got their lives, everybody's busy, and especially doing something for cheap or for no pay, it can be challenging for people to do it. So if you're going to sit around constantly waiting for other people to help you get something done, it's not necessarily going to happen. And sometimes you just have to fully grab the reins and, and drive this thing. So that's where I came into producing it as well. And so we used the crowdfunding site Indiegogo to run a, a funding campaign. And I budgeted the series, you know, after speaking to a number of producer friends of mine of what they thought it might cost. And again, I'm kind of a dummy in that for a first time trying to do things on it on the cheap series, I did silly things like I wrote a scene that takes place at a parade. And I wrote, <laughs> I, I wrote a scene that takes place on a jet plane. But I just kind of I didn't want to worry about it. I wanted to write the story I wanted to write and I would figure the rest out later. And I think at the time because I was thinking, oh, someone else will worry about this. And then I kind of got hoisted on my own petard and I had to deal with that. But we raised the money. I did. I ran the campaign foolishly while we were in previews for Elephant Man. So all of my offstage time and out of rehearsal time was spent on social media and emailing and really trying to push people to help us reach our goal, which we did. Then I discovered I had made another mistake in that with these crowdfunding sites, and again, because it was fairly new, this was in 2014, I was doing it. And the tax situation with these things hadn't really fully been figured out. But I discovered, unfortunately, I raised the money in November going into December. And the rules with raising this kind of money are that it's counted as income. So if you bring the money in, say, in January, and then you spend it all within that year, you're fine. It's a wash. The money comes in, the money goes out, and everybody's happy. If you don't spend it within that year, it's taxed as income. So between the fees you have to pay to the crowdfunding site and then what I got dinged for taxes, I ended up losing close to half my budget that I had raised oh my gosh. <laughs> to shoot this thing. So instantly we were kind of behind it, but it's what it was. And again, that's where I discovered my skills as a producer. And because I have, I've done stuff for free for people for so many years and because I have a, a really cooperative community around me, I just called in, had to call in a lot of favors. And and then some stuff was dumb luck. We found a parade in East Pasadena, California called the Duda Parade, which is kind of an anti-Rose Bowl parade. And the entry fee to get in the parade and be a float or whatever is $10. So I paid the $10 and we rented two convertible cars for about 35 bucks each. So I was able to shoot a scene at a parade for under $200. You just kind of had to find tricks like that to get it done and get it made when you're shooting kind of guerrilla, low budget kind of things. And I was just fortunate that everybody who I asked to join because they read the script thought so well of the project and was so excited by the project and the prospect of doing it that the entire cast worked for deferred payment. And I have Emmy Award winning actress in the show. I have Noah Wiley who's spent years on ER and doing other. You might have some big actors in the show who just for the chance of getting to play these really fun characters were willing essentially to do it for free and you know with no luxuries like a trailer or anything like that and all of them just gave 110 percent and i'm enormously proud of what we were able to put together well congratulations and what is the status of adoptable 
Well, um, the lesson continues to be learned about needing to just do stuff on your own because I got to the end of it and it was kind of like, okay, I brought the ball this far. I've done everything I can. I now need help from my agents, from my managers and all those people to help me sell it. And we realized early on, even after the first day of filming, that it was something pretty special that we didn't want to just put up on YouTube or put up on Vimeo and, and let people have at it. We felt like there's an actual thing of worth here that needs to get out to as many people as possible. And because there's so many streaming platforms out there now, like Netflix and whatnot, we felt very confident that we could find a home for it. It's been a great challenge. And we've had one of the top three you know, major streaming platforms we had a meeting at, and they loved the show, really liked it, and they wanted to put it up on their platform. But because it's in its current format, it's each episode is 15 minutes. It's six 15-minute episodes in the first season. They don't do 15-minute episodes for their comedies right now. So they thought enough of it that they would be proud to have it on their platform, but they weren't going to pay us for it. And we would have to handle our own marketing, which would be a whole lot more money. And given that we're already in the hole a bit because of the tax ding we have, it just didn't seem like the best plan for us. Plus, it doesn't get me what I want, which is ultimately at least two more seasons because I have those up in my head ready to go. Um, So it was very, very difficult decision to walk away from that. But we we did. And so since then, I've got sidelined by some other things in my life personally, that I'm kind of just getting back into the game now of getting it out to some festivals and getting it seen by some people. And we have a couple other possibilities now of, of places we want to bring it to who like the show. And we'll see. You have to be flexible. The possibility exists that we turn we do turn it into a half hour, which we're able to do if we want to, if, if a place wants to do that and give us a little extra money to add 10 minutes to each episode. I know how we can do that. Or we can reshoot the whole thing. I'm okay with that. But it's it's a challenge. There's so many places out there now, and they're all looking for content. The challenge is that my show is, dare I say, kind of a show for grownups, even though 20-somethings seem to like it a lot. But it's not necessarily meant for the kids, which a lot of stuff right now on uh, on some of these streaming platforms is. So it's it's definitely a challenge. And because it's new to me, and because... Unfortunately, my my team, as of yet, has not really been able to make it happen for me. I'm kind of again, yet again, in a place of taking the taking the reins and trying to trying to get it done and learning while I'm doing it of how you do it because it's so outside my knowledge base. I'm a stupid actor. I don't know how to <laughs> do these things. I don't know how to get these meetings and open these doors. Well, but actually, um, it sounds like you do. It sounds like you're I, learning it. And, yes. and I want to ask you, Scott, mm-hmm. about how the industry has evolved since you started out in it. How much of your ability to get work is based on your ability to promote yourself? You know, it's one of those strange things where there's, it feels like there's so many opportunities now. I mean, I think last year there was something like 400 different scripted series that were on, on air on all these different, you know, every channel has its own original series now. Every platform has its streaming platform has its own. So there's a ton of stuff out there. But to be honest, what's ended up happening is that a lot of these deals and a lot of the opportunities uh, are all coming out of two or three agencies in Hollywood. And if you're not part of that, you're kind of, you know, you're a middle class working actor who's trying to get jobs and trying to kind of get by on the scraps that are available in a lot of ways. 
And so it's gotten tougher in that way. And that didn't used to be the case. It used to feel like a little bit more of an even playing field, even though obviously, you know, the big, huge cash cow stars were at these huge agencies, but all the producers weren't necessarily there. And there wasn't all this kind of packaging that goes on now that if a producer or a creator of a show is with one of these big agencies, a lot of the actors that are with that agency too are going to get into that project. It used to feel a little more spread around. Yeah. Uh, that's even since, you know, because I just moved out to LA in 98. And again, like I got Queer as Folk. I had done mostly theater. I had done a couple guest stars, some TV shows. And I had done one made for TV movie before I got this series. Part of the reason for that was that because of the content of the show, there were entire agencies that would not send their actors into to it. There was close to 2,000 actors that would not come in to audition for the show because of the gay content in the show back in 2000. That's, of course, I think, changed a little bit. So that opened the door a little bit for someone like me with little experience to get in. But that's not the entire reason. It's more just that those opportunities seemed to be more available uh, readily to people. The other thing that's been shifting just in the past couple of years, which is absolutely necessary, and I truly do not say this in any kind of complaining way, but the corrective pendulum in terms of diversity that we see in, in entertainment is finally taking place, and it's a wonderful thing. But like most things... Uh, in Hollywood, they only kind of do things in extremes. So when the corrective pendulum swings, it swings all the way in one direction. So for the most part, for older white guys like me, if there's a part available that I might be right for, if they can put a person of color into that role, they're going to do it. So it's meant a lot more limited opportunities for myself and many of the actors I know who are my peers who are my age. So it's gotten a lot more challenging. Scott, one of the questions that I try to ask all time for coffee guests, and I think this is perhaps more relevant for your field than for many others because of the high rates of rejection with regards to the times you go out on auditions and the natural aspect of that within this industry. Could Mm -hmm. you share a story with the Time for Coffee community in which you really struggled to get through And most importantly, how you persevered, what it was you did, and and maybe a lesson you learned in the process, something that our young listeners can take with them as they begin their careers in this industry. Yeah, I'm thinking of two different times. I mean, I think I'll share this one. And it may not be specifically a story of struggle, but it gets to kind of a core thing of how you get through the rejection. And it was a big lesson for me to learn. When I moved to Los Angeles, I had not done a lot of film or TV work. As I had said, in my years in Chicago, I was kind of a theater snob and didn't think film and TV acting was real acting. (laughs) So when when I got to Los Angeles, I was very fortunate that I think the commercial market had shifted and I started doing a lot of commercials when I got there and learned very quickly that the majority of commercial directors, it's kind of their day job is doing commercials, but they're all wonderful television and film directors in their own right. So I kind of got to go to I got on-camera training that I was getting paid very nicely for from these wonderful directors. And there was one director who was a Swedish director who um, I had already done two commercials with, two really successful commercials. And he was going to be doing another commercial for a very well-known luxury car brand. And his producer, a guy named Mark, called me up and let me know that that Johan wanted me to do, he wanted me to be in this spot, essentially that he was just offering me the role, but that I would need to come to the callbacks because they wanted 
me to read with other actors who were going in for my my character's boss in this commercial. So I went in, we did the we did the callbacks and everything went great. And I was driving home and Mark, the producer, called me up and he said, hey, where are you? I said, I'm driving home. He said, great. Could you go home and could you shave again, shave as close as you can and come to the production office and let us take some photos of you? And I said, okay, that sounds kinky, but okay, <laughs> I, I, I can do it. I said, can I ask why? He said, well, it's the the clients, you know, meaning the people from the ad agency and especially the people from the luxury car brand. They're worried that you, you know, your beard, you look a little too Sephardic for them, a little too Jewish. <laughs> and I said, oh, because Jews don't buy this car brand? He said, I know, it's crazy, it's stupid, but could you just, just go do it? I said, okay. So I did. I went home. I shaved again as well as I could. He took some pictures and he told me other stories of things that seemed like, a sh- I mean, this was my job. There was no question. I mean, the director wants me. This is my job. And I almost lost it because somebody thought, you know, my beard looked a little too heavy. You know, he didn't like the shadow, the gray shadow on my face. And and Mark told me of other instances where someone, you know, came in and he looked like someone's brother-in-law and they fought him, you know, strange things. And so I learned that lesson that, you know, here's a surefire thing I was prepared to do because the director wanted me in this case. But I also happened to, you know, I know I did a great job in the callbacks, but that I almost lost it because of my beard tone. And so it was one of the greatest lessons I've learned and I've taken it with me that, you know, it's the only power you have is to go in and do the best job you can and you have to walk away from it you can't like let it linger if you if you messed up if you know you didn't do your best job then you can beat yourself up that a little bit but in the end it's going to come down to something stupid like that if you don't get a job it's going to come down to that you remind someone of their brother-in-law or that your beard is too heavy or your ears are too big or what have you and so th- you know within the whole industry there's so much you don't have control over and all you do is being prepared doing the best job you can and that's like they say, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So you're given an opportunity. And if you're prepared enough, hopefully luck will be on your side. But you can't let it eat away at you and take it personally every single time it happens because it has little to do with you and your actual talents and your skills. Oh, that um, is such great advice, Scott. I, I hope Java junkies will take that in. I want to just flash back very quickly to when you were an undergrad at Connecticut College, you majored in theater. I want to ask you, Scott, if you could go back to college and do it all over again, based on the wisdom that you have now, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good question. I'm fairly happy with what I chose. But if I had to go back and do it again, I might have chosen an undergraduate program that was a little better connected within the industry, either theater or film and TV, because I have seen other actors benefit from having that sense of community of either alumna of their college or their fellow classmates Connecticut College. I had six theater majors in my in my class. It's a small it's a small liberal arts college, and I'm grateful to have had that liberal arts education. I think that's benefited me as an actor, as opposed to a conservatory. But 
I feel like I had to work a whole lot harder than a lot of people coming out to make opportunities happen for myself, whereas others, because of connections that they have from the programs they went through that also trained them to be wonderful actors, I felt like they had a little bit of a leg up. So that that might be something I might have chosen differently in terms of what uh, what school I ended up going to. And it sounds like, I mean, from everything you've just laid out, this is such a competitive and unpredictable industry that every little bit of a leg up that you can give yourself at the beginning is something that can only benefit you over the long run, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Scott, I want to thank you sincerely for taking time out of your schedule, out of your day to help me and most importantly, the young people who are listeners of Time for Coffee, the Time for Coffee community to better understand what it is actors do, what it is producers and screenwriters do. And I also want to wish you a huge amount of good fortune moving forward, both with Adoptable and getting it on some streaming service or whatever the case may be, so that we can all get a window into some of your life and also have that entertainment that is available to us. Thank you again for making time for Coffee, Scott. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.